have the joy of uh, introducing to us a new series. And some of you may have seen it already in our socials, we have shared. Uh, those of you who are on our WhatsApp channel, uh, I know many of you perhaps do not know there's a WhatsApp channel that exists called Mamlaka. So you can get your updates there. And we are studying on a new series called Churchwise. Earlier in the week when we were asking each other in the pastoral team, what shall we call this series? Rev. Mora is the one who came up with this brilliant idea. And we call it the church wise. So we asked Rev. Mora, what do you mean by the church wise? Says, but yeah, like the church wise. Do you see the kind of confusion you guys are in? That's what was happening to many of us. Then he started elaborating and said, I mean, why we preach and why we give and why we, uh, a lot of us are like, why are you making life hard for us? So we decided to call it church wise because we are wise people and we wanted Mawara to know that we are wise. Uh, even though his, uh, his suggestion had made us feel differently. So on this series, we are talking about church-wise. How do we know why we do the things that we do here in church? What exactly is the reason behind the things that we do? Why do we give time for preaching, for example? Or why do we insist on giving every Sunday? Why exactly do we sing? Why do we pray? Why do we gather on Sunday morning? And I know some of you guys do those things religiously because perhaps that's how you've been brought up. And this is me recognizing that in this congregation, we might perhaps have come from very different and diverse backgrounds. For sure, there are some of us who have come from a Roman Catholic background. Roman Catholic background and uh, you have a liturgy of how things go on that side. So when you come to Amlaka, sometimes you feel like there's not enough standing uh, and sitting down and you wonder, why are these people not giving reverence to the Lord every time uh, to stand up and to sit down? Some of you perhaps are from a more liturgical background, the Lutherans and the Presbyterians. Uh, I also see some Anglicans here and, and Methodists. I a Methodist. Uh, yeah, I can see my Meru friend uh, looking at me. Yes, uh, some of you from the Methodist Church as well. And, and, and you respect liturgy. And in our language, we call it mutaratara. And you say, why does sometimes we just disrupting the service by bringing things that are not uh, in accordance to the procedures of how things should be done? But perhaps more interesting are the ones who are from the Pentecostal background. Ah, you guys, I know you. <laughs> These are the ones who follow me after church and say, Madenge, you had a great opportunity to speak in tongues. <laughs> you missed it. You just missed it. Uh, right where it was needed. Up on your Ugebalizia, your point. Uh, yes, a tongue. Uh, so... Those ones are here, and uh, when Kavesu kneels down here, they all fall to the ground. Uh, and, and they feel like we do not uh, use tongues enough. But there are those of the Baptist background who look at us doing those things and wonder exactly why are people crying? <laughs> and these songs that you are singing, Lifting Hands, do you not know that the Lord hears even if your hands are not lifted? <laughs> Some of us from the back, we want to see from the front. Yes. And the farthest they can uh, do in terms of engaging with music is just to levitate a little <laughs> with their uh, legs. Nothing more. Uh, just so that they are not looking irreverent in the house of the Lord. We respect you, Baptist people. Just give us the freedom to... I'm going to say a corner. There will be a corner for Baptist people. 
about to see you. You don't want to nini with a raising of hands. But question is, why do we do these things as mamlaka? Why don't we bow to the altar every time we cross this cross? My Anglican friends, I don't have an answer yet. Uh, hopefully this series will tell you why. Because you feel perhaps that every time we cross the altar, there needs to be a small bow to the presence of Christ. Why exactly does Bishop walk into this uh, sanctuary and people are not rising up? That is disrespectful to the man of God. Mafuta imeja hapa, Sometimes I just wonder, mamlakites. Hey, hey. But yeah, you may wonder, why does mamlaka do these things this way? So for this series, we want to consider, what does the sacred scripture say about us? And to the best of what we are convinced, we will tell you why we do the things that we do. Going to the scriptures to convince you that we believe this is what the Lord would have us do. This is not a time to point fingers or to accuse each other. Or even unnecessarily to unsettle you in what you have come to believe or be convinced about. No. On the contrary, our hope is to give you good reason to participate. That when you come to worship, you have a greater reason of participating meaningfully in the worship service. That when you approach scripture, perhaps it will, you will get more benefit when we come in the gathering of believers. So that yours is not a thoughtless kind of engagement, but an engagement that is going to be beneficial for your soul. And maybe of even greater importance that the glory of God may be advocated in this place. That at the end of the day, our Lord Jesus Christ would receive glory out of it. We are not hoping to be exhaustive. And you might feel there are some things we have left out. Come to Nawiri. We will talk about them. You can ask your questions there. Of concern to me, however, is the culture that we are living in now. We are living in a culture that can be quite passive. And you realize just the amount of memes you go through in your WhatsApp status. In about a two minutes of time, you have looked at 50 different memes and somehow laughed at this, you are sad at this, you laughed at this, or oh, this one you are indifferent about. And passivity does not allow us to introspect deeply about anything. Those of you who are fond of sharing some kavas in the morning, most of you will just go online or because your version told you that this is the verse of the day, and you'll share it. How many of us actually sit down and introspect on the verse, and out of our own introspection, we write down something and we place it online? Because we, we, we don't want the thinking part. The thinking part we have left to chat GPT. And sometimes, even when it comes to God's, uh, God's word, and the things of God, we have delegated our thoughts to the online space and those who would have it. So our worship of God on Sunday sometimes can be mindless, shallow, can be powerless, even vain. And we end up with something of what Isaiah said. They offer their lips service to me, but their hearts are far away from me. Today we talk about the Holy Communion. Why do we take Holy Communion? This meal is also called the Eucharist, from the word Eucharisto. Some of you may not know that. Which means to thank, or to express gratitude. It is Latin. To say, we are expressing gratitude to God every time we come to the Lord's table. For the things that he has done for us, thank you. And our participation, therefore, is an expression of gratitude. Or we may call it sacrament, a sacred, visible symbol of the inward spiritual grace that we have received in Christ. Or in other circles, we call it an ordinance because 
The ordinances are what Christ Jesus instituted, ordained, that his church may do. Of the ordinances, we recognize two ordinances. That's the Holy Communion and baptism. Christ himself instructed that this must be done in his gathered church. That baptism, whoever comes to faith, they are baptized. And after they are baptized, they are put in a local body like what we have here. And then in the local body of Christ, he says, I command you that you may enjoy the Lord's Supper as often as you do in remembrance of me. Often, for some churches, has become once a year. I don't think that is often enough. Sometimes in some churches, it's every week. And maybe because of its frequency, it has lost meaning. Here at Mamlaka, we enjoy the Lord's table once a month. So every last week of the month, and the last week of February, we are going again to have communion. We get together and we celebrate the Lord's table. In the communion, we call it Holy Communion because first it is holy. Holy, sacred, set apart, consecrated. The Holy Communion is not like the Mandazi we share on Thursday. And even though we also commune around the Mandazi after our Thursday prayer service, that is not Holy Communion. This meal is set apart, consecrated, sacred. And it is communion because not only are we communing with one another, but also we are communing with the Lord Jesus Christ who inaugurated the Holy Communion. Let me say, in the celebration of the Holy Communion, there is a special presence of the Lord. Christ himself comes to be with his people in a very special way as they celebrate communion. Not to mean in a physical way. Christ is not here. In fact, John chapter 13 verse 33 tells us, as it was talking to his disciples, he told them, where I am going, you cannot come. So there is a separation that has happened between the disciples and Christ. He has been raised. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. In his human nature, he exists with God. He is localized in humanity in heaven. John 16, 16 will also tell us that we will see him no longer. He himself tells the disciples, I know I have told you guys, you will not see me any longer, so you are gripped with sorrow because I am going back to my father. So yes, Christ is not here physically. There is no Christ physically here. But in every sense and in a very real way, Christ is in our midst. As Matthew 28, 18 says, he is with us to the end of the age. And I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm saying Christ is with us to the very end of the age. He himself says in John chapter 14 that he will come to us. Much as he will send the helper, he will come to us. So yes, during the Holy Communion, he sheds his grace to us in a special way. During Holy Communion, we get to commune with him in a spiritual way by faith but in a very special way. I say special because when Paul, for example, is saying, some of you have fallen sick, some of you have even died because of taking the Holy Communion in an unworthy manner, he doesn't say that about the church gathered, just on a normal Sunday. He talks about that when he's referring to the Holy Communion. So we must recognize that Christ is in our midst during communion in a very, very special way. Let's go to Luke chapter 22. I'll read from verse 1 to 20. Luke 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests, and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented 
and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. He said, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this, divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So in this text of scripture, we see Christ inaugurating what we have come to know as the Lord's table. But allow me to discuss as we go through this text under three categories. First, the Lord's Passover feast. Second, the Lord's table. And thirdly, the Lord's marriage feast. The Lord's Passover. Exodus chapter 12 has the kind of description of what exactly God instituted to be the Passover feast. In Israel, as it is today, People were in the business of sacralizing important times in history. It's almost like to put a mark or to put a spot in a time that you consider important or of great significance. Think about it this way. Your birthday, for example, may not be significant to anyone else in this sanctuary. But for you, it holds meaning. Because you think that on this day that I was born, there is some great significance and it needs to be celebrated. Your anniversary date, when perhaps you got married, even such events as Easter and Christmas, is because we hold that the events that took place on this particular day need to be sacralized. We need to put a mark on them. We need to celebrate. We need to mark them as important. One of the days that is also marked as important is Valentine's. I'm hoping we can just, uh, men, we decide because of AFCON, we just uh, scrap off the sacralization of uh, Valentine's. Valentine's equal New Year's. New Year's and Valentine's to be on the same day. I think it will save us a few shillings in the pocket. Don't you agree? Uh, yeah, I can see ladies having mixed reactions. I'm sorry. Uh, thankfully, my wife is not in this sanctuary, so, yeah. But sometimes it's not just time that we sacralize. Even, even physical location. Think about Moses. The place that he stands, he meets with God. And then he, after he meets with God, he sees a burning bush, goes closer, he's told, stop right there. Remove your shoes, for the ground that you are stepping on is holy. Moses might have looked around and said, okay, I think this ground is just uh, pebbles and uh, desert sand. But it's all no, that is holy ground. What has made that place holy is the interaction, almost the intersection between God and man. The place where God meets man, that place becomes holy. Think about Bethel. 
where Jacob himself, after waking up from a stone of sleep, and he says, oh my goodness, I saw a ladder of angels going up and down and I received the promises of God. How holy is this place? And I almost missed it. So he builds an altar and pours oil on it and says, this is holy ground. What has made it holy is the fact that God is interacting with man at a certain place physically. You will see the same in a, uh, the time of Joshua as he's crossing the, Red, uh, the, the, the Jordan River and many other times where men sacralize places. God himself will make the Sabbath day, the day of his rest, sacred. And he says, the Sabbath is holy to me. So all of you, I don't want you to work on the Sabbath because that day is holy unto the Lord. God is about to do something amazing in Israel. He's about to redeem them from Egypt, from 400 years of slavery. He's about to redeem them. So he comes to them in the night. He has been hardening the heart of, the heart of Pharaoh so that no one will say it is by the grace of Pharaoh, the good heart of Pharaoh, our good and gracious and kind Pharaoh, who has just decided to let the slaves go. No, no, no. Pharaoh is hardened. He will not let the people of God go. But God with a mighty hand is about to save Israel. So on that night he tells Moses, I want Israel to mark this day as a day that will be commemorated for generations to come. All generations to come. So he institutes the feast of the Passover because of what he's about to do. First, he tells them to slaughter a lamb. A lamb one year old, without blemish. And it's blood to be smeared on the doorposts of the Israel households. So that when the angel of death comes, the avenger, who comes to kill and slaughter the children of Egypt, he will pass over the households of Israel. Secondly, he tells them, you will eat bitter herbs on the day. I don't know who here has eaten the managu there. The, the man, there's a managu there that uh, has some kind of kabitaness. Uh, and, and I'm sure whoever discovered that wanted also to uh, make our life miserable, Kidogo. But this represents the kind of slavery and oppression they have been going through in Egypt. And he wants them to remember. You remember the pain you were suffering in Egypt? Ah, I will put that pain still in the Passover feast. So that when you are taking those bitter herbs years later, you will say, never to look at Naomiya, Egypt. And the Lord remembered us. And then finally, of course, he gives them the unleavened bread. Unleavened because they are living in a hurry and they don't have time to wait for the dough to rise. Sometimes I'll see my wife cooking some pastries there and tells me, ah, the dough is rising. They don't have that time. It's the Lord's Passover. You eat in a hurry. We need to go. But also, perhaps most importantly, as Paul comes to tell us later in Corinthians, representing the kind of separation that he hopes that Israel will have with sin. You see, the yeast that is represented in the unleavened bread is that this bread is free of the influence of yeast. Later on he will say, the next seven days after the Passover, you are to not eat any bread that is leavened. Seven days of unleavened bread feast, the feast of, uh, of the unleavened bread. Because Israel needs to separate itself from the things that cause sin. That yeast, the problem with yeast is how quickly it works in the, in the dough. Do you know how it just even dropped by mistake? And that the whole dough receives the yeast. Did you see how sin, for example, during the time of Je Joshua, Achan sin? goes to the whole camp. These guys go to war and they are defeated because one sin can cause so much damage to the people of God. Think about the ten who came with a bad report after going on the other side. Of a congregation of six million, two million people, for example, 600,000 men, two million people of Israel, all of them do not get into the promised land because ten guys, save Joshua and Caleb, decided to bring a bad report. 
And the Bible tells us that the battling point spread out like fire throughout the whole camp. So two million people are stuck in the desert for 40 years because of 10 guys. When God is saying separate yourselves from the yeast, and later on Jesus will refer to that as the yeast of the Pharisees, you need to just see the gravity of what this is. So in this Passover feast, he says, yes, I want you to separate yourself from yeast, and I want you to take unleavened bread. You see, later that night, the angel of death comes. And the Bible is saying there was hard wailing in, Israel, uh, in Egypt's homes. Because the angel of death came and slaughtered all the firstborn, all the firstborns in the Egyptian households. But the children of Israel were spared. And I don't want you to think for a minute, it's because the children of Israel were more righteous than the uh, Egyptians. No, 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 no. The Bible tells us that it is because of the blood of the lamb that was spread on the doorpost. That when the angel of death would come and find that there is blood on this door, he would pass over and go to the next household. If you are an Israelite and you decided I am not going to apply the blood, for sure your first word would have died. So the feast was to commemorate first that God chose to spare his people from this judgment. And secondly, that immediately after, God rescues them from the slavery of Egypt with a mighty hand. So, two things are happening here in the Passover. One, they are looking back. They are looking back at the slavery they have endured. And they are saying, oh, how good is the Lord that he has rescued us from that. So they come with rejoicing and thanksgiving. Secondly, not only does it look back, the Passover, but it looks forward. It looks forward to a day where they will experience the greater deliverance of God. Deliverance from what you might ask. Yes, they have been delivered from the hands of Egyptians. But soon they realize that that was not even their greatest enslavement. The greater enslavement with which they suffer is the enslavement of sin. Israel will just realize how much bondage they are in when it comes to sin and death. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 3 and 4 will tell us that the sacrifices they were offering were simply a reminder of their sins. That every time they slaughtered that Passover lamb, they would remember their sins that needed to be covered by a sacrifice. Because they were still in bondage. Yet, he also says, because it was impossible for the blood of bulls and the blood of goats to take away sins. Much as they sacrificed every year, those, those same sacrifices had to be repeated. Why? Because it was impossible for that blood to cleanse them truly, to purge sin truly. So yes, as they celebrated the Passover, they are looking back to a deliverance from Egypt and they are celebrating, but they also realize just how much they need a greater deliverance than what they have already incurred. They look forward to a future deliverance in hope for a better sacrifice. A sacrifice better than this blood of bulls and goats because this one is not doing the job. A better priest, a better deliverer than Moses because even though Moses was a great man and a great prophet, he could not purge sin from Israel. And they are looking forward for a promise to be removed from the greater enslavement, as I have mentioned, the enslavement of sin. Later the prophets will tell us that the only one who could have achieved this for Israel, to redeem them from this kind of enslavement, was the Messiah. So with eagerness, as they celebrated the Passover year after year, they longed for the Messiah. They said, oh Messiah, where is that Messiah? Who will come and finally redeem us from the enslavement of sin? Enter the Lord's table. Verse 7 of the chapter we have read on, on Luke says, that Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. 
You see, on this particular Passover feast, these guys have celebrated like three times with Christ. Since the time that Christ began his ministry, there's been three years of ministry. So they've done Passover like Christ with him. So they just come and say, uh, Jesus, we know you are the guy. You are the guy. Uh, so Passover, uh, where do we do this? Uh, you know, the guy who multiplies bread and fish, because he has form about Passover. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you guys are poor fishermen. Uh, so go to the, this town. You'll find this guy, and he'll show you where to prepare it. Peter and John dashed to do that work. But the Bible tells us there was this character also by the name of Judas, also known as Iscariot. The Bible says that Satan entered him. Satan entered him, and he went to the chief priests and told them, I know you've been looking for Jesus. I think I can help. You can imagine how awkward that conversation is. Oh, Okay, uh, you are a disciple among the 12 trusted, and you are here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually came disguised so that no one would see me. The stage has been sent. The stage is ready. We already know that Judas loves money, he's greedy, so he takes the money, he pockets it, and he says, Okay, I'll look for a time where there's no crowd so that I may betray Christ. He comes volunteering, actually. So when verse 7 tells us that it was time for the Passover lamb to be sacrificed, Jesus knew exactly what that means. Ah, he has celebrated 33 Passovers already. 33 Passovers. He knows it is time. The time has come. In fact, he tells his disciples, John 13, 1, we read that. John chapter 13, verse 1, he tells his disciples, it was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who are in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Going back to chapter 22 of Luke, he says in verse, 14, verse 15, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Christ is not confused about his, his responsibility here. He is not unaware of what God requires of him on this Passover day. He knows that he is to become the Passover lamb. He knows too well that he is to become the fulfillment of everything that Passover pointed to. I am about to fulfill all that the Passover represents. I'm about to alter what Passover is going forward. You see, Passover was a pointer, a signboard that was pointing to a certain reality. That reality is me. The way you can see a, a signboard written shell one kilometer away. When you go one kilometer, you should start looking for a shell because that is exactly where the destination was being pointed to. It is sad to realize how the Jews, some of them even now, still wait for the Messiah. As those who went right past the reality of what that was pointing to and are still waiting for a Messiah to come when a Messiah has already come. As the Passover was pointing to this deliverance that Christ is about to inaugurate, the Lord's table also will point to a further deliverance to look forward to. The deliverance that was about to happen here and now at Calvary's Hill the next day. So Passover was inaugurated a day before the angel of death came. Because in the night, the angel of death would come to slay the children of, uh, of Egypt. Jesus in the night is inaugurating the Lord's table. Because of what he is about to suffer the next day, a few hours later, where he would be handed over to evil men who will persecute him 
and finally kill him. He will become the Passover lamb. This is how he fulfills the feast of the Passover. First, to become the Passover lamb, slain for the cleansing of sin. Not the covering of sin, like the blood of goats and bulls was doing. No, 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 no. The purging of sin, the complete removal of sin from Israel. Secondly, he will drink of the bitterness, of the bitterness that sin had brought on Israel. He takes it on his own willingly. He carries their cross. He takes the penalty and the punishment and the pain that they deserved. And finally, he will remove all the yeast in God's household. He is the unleavened bread. Who will remove all the yeast in the household of God? In a way that had never been done before. While they did that symbolically, he is the only one who can cleanse and remove yeast from the household of God truly. The corruption of sin and the corruption by Satan. So he says, take it. This is my body. Drink, all of you. This is the new covenant in my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of many sins. You see, Jesus is saying that deliverance which the Passover was pointing to, this is the great deliverance. I'm instituting it now. That's why I have the authority to be able to alter what the Passover was. Because I am, I'm about to fulfill what the Passover was pointing to. I am the greater deliverance. I am the greater deliverer. Greater than Moses indeed. You see, Egypt was a shadow of the enslavement, the true enslavement of Israel. 400 years of slavery was nothing compared to the sin enslavement that Israel was suffering. Moses was a deliverer for sure, but he was nothing compared to the deliverer, true deliverer who is Christ. The Passover lamb was only a shadow of the lamb of God, as John describes him, who takes away the sin of the world. Colossians 2.17 says that these festivals were only shadows of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Christ is the Passover lamb of sacrifice. And Peter will describe him in 1 Peter 1.19, the lamb without defect, the lamb without blemish. Listen to John as he writes Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 19, uh, verse 9 to verse 12. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you are slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to become a kingdom of priests to serve the Lord, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Indeed, Christ has become to us the Passover lamb. Friends, he is the unleavened bread without any corruption. He is the slain lamb that takes away the sin of the world. I want us to be careful, however. Careful not to think that when Christ says, this is my body, that he means literal body. I want you to be careful not to understand when he says this is my blood, a literal blood. No, no, no. When he's inaugurating this feast, number one, he has not shed blood. He has not been broken yet. This is before. So when he's saying this is my body, 
you cannot understand that to be the physical body because the physical body is the one that is holding the cup at that moment in time. But yes, this must be understood to be symbolic. That when he's saying, this is my body, he's saying, this represents my body. The way my body will be broken, and because God had instituted that the sacrifice Christ was about to make was once and for all. Christ was not offered twice. He, he was not to be offered again and again on the cross. His blood was not to be shed again and again. Once and for all. But these representatives are to say, when I say this is my body, it represents my body. So when you are partaking of the body of Christ, you are thinking about the realities that it points to, but not to be taken as equal to his body. These symbols are to remind us of the reality. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. Of course it's in remembrance. It's a memorial. It's like how we remember someone who has passed on and we take a photo and we look at it and we say, oh yes. But the reality is that that person does not live in that photo anymore. But you would wonder, why, Lord? Why would you tell us to remember your death? You see, the death of Jesus was not a joyful event. It was not a ratio. I was in a ratio yesterday, that's why I'm uh, thinking about a ratio. It's not a ratio where you are saying, ah, let's mark this ratio. Ah, but then we had such a good time. And we tend to more or less remember the events that were joyful events. His will be a morbid, violent death. The breaking of his body, floggings, beatings, crucifixion, spearing, the spilling of his blood by thorns, whips, rods, nails, spears. Why is he telling us to remember such a gruesome death? Because it is through this pain, through this weakness, through this desperation, this rejection, this fatigue, this suffocation, this mockery, this isolation, this agony, these floggings, these scars, these tears, this shame, this humiliation. It is through this torn flesh and swollen face where they hit him with rods, this bleeding that we have received our redemption. That is where our redemption came from. See, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1.26 that whoever is to drink this cup and eat this bread must proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. Not the Lord's resurrection, not the Lord's life, not the Lord's miracles, not the Lord's love, not the Lord's mercy, the Lord's death. It is the death of Christ that the Holy Communion points to and helps us remember. You see, there's a heavy cost that was paid for us to be redeemed from the enslavement of sin. In our day, we want to remove the edge from the gospel message. We want to say, you know, yeah, God loves everyone, yeah, of course. You know, it's, a, it's an, an age of grace. We want to hear the gospel message without the offense of the cross. We want a God who is love, not a God who has wrath against sin, or one who will nail his son on the cross. Yet, Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. See, your sins cost Jesus' his life in a very cruel and a gruesome death. So stop hoping for cheap grace. It does not exist. Ours is a costly grace. It costs Jesus his life. So when we are doing that, we are emptying the cross of its power. When we remove the offense of the crucifixion, we are emptying the cross of, his power, uh, of its power. So when we come to the feast, friends, you come in tears. Tears of joy first. That Christ has considered you worthwhile. 
and paid that hefty price for you. So come in tears of joy, oh God, that you did not consider your very death too heavy a price to pay for me. But also come in tears of sorrow, because you know perhaps how you have toyed around with sin. And in so doing, Hebrews will say, crucifying the Lord of glory again and again. Or like Judas, who shares in the Lord's table, knowing very well that he has just come from betraying Jesus. And Jesus tells him, one of you will betray me. And he says, is it I, Lord? Of yes, Jesus in Mark tells him, yes, it is you. He will even attempt to come and kiss Jesus later. So come in sorrow when you approach the Lord's table. Because perhaps of how you have toyed around with sin. Finally, the Lord's table does not stop there. The Lord's table is pointing to a reality, greater reality of the marriage feast of the Lamb. The marriage feast of the Lamb in verses 17 and 18 of the same Luke chapter 22. He says, I will not enjoy this feast until the kingdom of God comes. There remains another celebration, friends. Another celebration where we will be physically united with Jesus. You see the way he was with his disciples. He says, there is a day that is going to be done again. During that time, we will not need to remember his death. He will be with us. We will see him face to face. We do not need to remember the cost that he has paid. We will be seeing him daily and experiencing the full extent of the blessedness. In fact, Revelation chapter 19 verse 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. How blessed they are. Those who are the bride of Christ, Ephesians 5, 26, who are purchased by him with his own blood, pure and without spot and without wrinkle, the church of Christ. Ah, this communion is temporary. It represents something temporary because there is something greater that it points to. The marriage feast of the Lamb. The marriage feast of the Lamb. But what to you, friends, who is not invited to the marriage feast? If blessed are they who are invited, what to you if you are not? If you are left out of the feast? The Bible calls it in utter darkness. Like the five foolish virgins who did not have enough oil. Or like the invited guy in the feast who came without the proper kind of dressing. And he was thrown out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, how pitiful your state will be on that day. Make every effort, I plead with you, to enter the feast of the Lord. How are you to take this Lord's table then? Contemplate. First, come in contemplation. Give serious thoughts to it. Now that you have understood what the Lord has done, remember him, his body, his blood. Come in gratitude and joy because he has redeemed you. Yet, make a resolve in your heart to deal in hostility to your sin. Deal with hostility to the sin that actually made Christ to be crucified. Don't toy around with it no more. Secondly, come with reverence. Come with reverential fear. Paul will caution us about taking the body of Christ in an unworthy manner. Unworthy without proper examination of our hearts. Without considering what exactly Christ has done. If you are living in rebellion, if you are living in sin, consider. It says, judge yourself that you may not be judged. This is not unto exclusion. It's not so that you may stay away from the Lord's table. But so that by the time you are coming to the Lord's table, you have confessed your sin. And you are not taking it in an unworthy manner. Or another way you can take it in an unworthy manner 
if you are not recognizing the body of Christ, the church. You see, this meal is not a personal meal you are cooking in your home. This meal is a meal shared with other brothers. And if Christ is building his church, and you are a source of dissensions and divisions in the body of Christ, you are undoing the work that Christ is doing. So come in confession to God. And say, Lord, I know I have been taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner because I have fights and quarrels with other brothers. And ask the Lord to help you as you come to the table. Again, not to, to exclude yourself, but so that you may, you may be included in the Lord's table. And finally, as I call the worship team to come, as well as the servers to come and help us who are queued to serve us, come in deep trust and loyalty to God. Come like Paul, who said, this life I live, I now live by faith in Jesus Christ. Christ who loved me and gave his life up for me. Abandon those gods and those masters who you have placed over your life. Come to the Lord's table and say, Lord, here I am. I want to leave behind all these other authorities that I have entertained to guard my life. You see, if you have not come to trust the Lord, reckon that he who did not spare his only begotten son, Christ, but freely gave him up for you, that you may re be redeemed from the enslavement of sin, how will he not along with his son, Jesus, give you all things? What is that that can stand in the way of you trusting this Savior, this God? Ask yourself today, and then approach the table of the Lord. Approach the table of the Lord with such reverence. Come, eat the body. Come, drink his blood. Come, share in this gift that he has given us, exemplified in the communion table. And ask the Lord, to actually be Lord over your life.